Well, let's pray together as we turn to God's word. God, we ask you once again to be our teacher. God, we thank you for the Bible, that you loved us so much. Not only that you saved us, but then, Lord, you continue to guide us through this Bible that you inspired for us. So, Lord, we take it to heart today. I pray, God, that by your spirit, you will perfectly apply this message in each heart. Those who need assurance from you, God, I pray that you would give them sweet assurance. And Lord, those who need to be stirred up and awakened to their need for you, God, I pray that by your spirit, you'll do that work as well. Guide us as we turn now to your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Turn with me now to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, we're going to pick up in a moment in verse 21. This is a very sobering passage. And if you think about it, it's even a very frightening passage. Hear the words of Jesus with me. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Jesus tells us here that there will be many who think they are destined for heaven, but he will turn away to be going somewhere else. Imagine the shock and devastation. Put yourself in the shoes of those for just a moment who thought everything was fine. I'm destined for eternity in heaven only to learn in that moment. No, it's going to be an eternity in hell. What a horrifying experience that Jesus here describes for us. And Jesus says, this is going to happen to many. Oh, may it never happen to you. Here's Jesus in love telling us about this, that we might make sure that we actually know him. Now, remember the context of what we've been seeing here in chapter seven. We're in this call for decision that Jesus is bringing up in various ways here as he concludes his sermon on the mount. But it's a series of warnings as well. Verses 13 and 14, remember, we were warned away from the wide gate and the broad way that leads to destruction. And then we saw in verses 15 through 20, a warning against the false prophets, those prophets of the wide gate who would be disguised as sheep, but truly were ravenous wolves. And now Jesus gives us a warning against false professions to help people understand that their profession to know Jesus needs to be real. But it's a sad reality that many on the, on the broad way that leads to destruction, they already think they are Christians when it's just not true. Let's hear our text again. Let's let it sink in. Hear the words of Jesus again. Again, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So take this to heart with me. You and I have been examining two gates. You and I have been examining false prophets. Now we need to examine ourselves. Is my claim that I'm a Christian true? So the first thing we want to note here as Jesus describes this is this, that there is a coming time of judgment. There's a coming time of judgment. Jesus speaks of a time when we're going to give an account of our lives before him. Verse 22 says, on that day, there's a day where that's going to happen. And this day of judgment is described throughout the Bible. Here's an example, Romans chapter 2, verse 5. But because of your stubbornness, an unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment 
of God. To Christians, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.10 this, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And about unbelievers, we're taught about a judgment in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 and following. Listen to this. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne and books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead, which were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead, which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Jesus lets us know there is a day of judgment coming. A final, accurate judgment day is coming. And notice this there is a judge. And that judge is Jesus himself. Yes, Jesus who is our savior, but he is also our judge. And I'm glad he's the judge. In fact, I'm glad he's my judge. Here is great assurance. Here's great comfort. When you know Jesus, you you know this, he is my judge. I'll one day stand before him, but this one who is my judge, he already is my savior. He's already washed all my sins away. He's already made me righteous through what he accomplished for me on the cross. And so, yes, one day, an awesome moment, a fearful moment. But when I stand in that moment to give an account, I'm standing before my Savior that I already know. Of course, when we stand before him as believers, there is an assessment of our faithfulness. And he will give out whatever rewards he wants to give. But it's already been established and secured whether or not bound for heaven or not through what he's accomplished at the cross. He's already given the gift of eternal life. Don't you love Romans 8, 1? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus already took that condemnation. So I'm so glad Jesus is the judge who is my savior. But listen, I'm also glad that Jesus is the savior of the world and the judge of the world and that I am not. Remember back in chapter seven, verse one, where we're warned we're not to put ourselves in that ultimate seat of judgment over others. Yes, we are to discern. Yes, we are to correct one another in love. We're to even rebuke each other, trying to restore one another faithfulness when someone stumbles. Yes, we're to do that. But we're not to take the seat of judgment over other people. That is the role of Jesus. Here's why that's good news, that only Jesus belongs on that throne of judgment, because we can get judgment wrong, can't we? We can assess people wrongly. Well, it was in May of 2020 that a world-famous Christian apologist died. And those of us who knew of his ministry, we grieved. And at his funeral, many great and noble people went to his funeral. And people said all kinds of wonderful things about this man, things like this. He was a giant of the faith. Some others said of him, he's a hero of the faith. One person said of him, he was not just a great man, he was a good man man. And all of us would have assumed that the moment this man died and he entered into the presence of God, certainly if anyone was going to hear these words, this man would hear it because of the books written and all the fruit of his ministry. We thought he would hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. But then it came to light. Some of it started to come to light during 
his final days on the earth, but certainly afterwards, his own ministry had to commission an investigation into his life and has been determined by his own ministry that this man was living a double life, that he was involved in sexual sin over years, apparently not repenting of it, harming some women, women who thought, oh, I thought this was a Christian leader and things he was attempting to do with them behind closed doors, shocking. And so the name of Jesus that he proclaimed so well in his life has brought such shame to it, even now coming to light after his death. So I don't know what the Lord said to him when he came into heaven, but we can be pretty certain it was not well done, good and faithful servant. The Lord saw some things that we did not see. So listen, God is the judge and he knows all. He knows the public you and he knows the private you. And when he judges, he will get that judgment absolutely right. You and I can't tell for sure what's happening in somebody else's life, but God knows for sure what's happening. We don't have all the facts, but our God has all the facts. I want you to notice how, how decisive Jesus is when he pronounces this judgment here in our text. When he says, depart from me, I never knew you. There's no hesitation in Jesus whatsoever. So there's a coming day of judgment. We see that clearly in our text. Secondly, this, this will be a day of shock and distress for many. This is going to be a day of shock and distress for many. So as human beings, we can be fooled by others, but as human beings, we can also fool ourselves. Not everybody who thinks they are saved truly are saved. Jesus says many will be lost. I looked this week at a 19, or 2019 Barna research study on really the spiritual landscape of America. And did you know that 73% of Americans identify as Christians? So when asked, what are you, uh, 73% of Americans in this particular survey said, we're Christian. That number seems awfully high, doesn't it? I don't think 73% of the people I interact with out in the community are Christians, but that's what they call themselves. Well, that number drops down to 35% when Barna asked, are you born again? And so he didn't define what that was, but just asked, do you use that label? Well, the number drops down from 73% to 35% who self-identify as born again. But, but what do they mean by born again? That might just mean that they had uh, an emotional experience at camp one time, but they're calling that born again. But listen to this. But when the labels aren't used, when Barna then just begins to ask about their beliefs and their practices, the number drops down to 7% that would be recognizable as a Christian by biblical definitions. And so for instance, do you believe that Jesus alone can save you? Or do you believe that the Bible is true and, and accurate and you should follow it? Do you actually attend worship? Do you actually read the Bible? When you think about these basic things, the number is not 73%, it's not 35%, the number goes down to 7%. So many are professing something that's not true of them. Claiming to be a Christian does not make that so. Jesus warned us that there will be hypocrites who are spiritual pretenders. Jesus warned us that there will be false prophets who are disguised as sheep but truly are wolves. And now he warns us there are some self-deceived professing Christians who truly don't know the Lord. Jesus says there are many of them and they will be shocked 
Now, you can imagine the protest. If we just go to that 73% of Americans who identify as Christians and upon their death, standing before the Lord, and he says, I never knew you. They would protest, but I am a Christian. But Jesus even tells us here, there will be people protesting on that day. Look at verse 22 again. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Those are impressive things. And so they were religious people who were self-deceived. They were involved. Notice they even used his name. Lord, we did these things in your name. They even used his title, Lord. They participated in some impressive things, but Jesus pointed to the problem. I never knew you. So what is your confidence that on the day of your judgment, you'll pass safely into heaven and the joys of that forever? What, what is your confidence? What would you say to the Lord? Would you say, well, I came to church. I even watched online or I tried to be good. I, I tried to be better than other people. I, I even gave money. I even went on a mission trip one time. Would, be, would these be the kinds of things you would point to to the Lord and say, you should let me in? Listen, that won't save you. Those are great things, but it won't save you. So, so what is then genuine salvation? How can I not make a false profession? How can I have a real profession of faith in Jesus? How can I know for sure? Well, first this, you need to know Jesus. Notice how Jesus made the issue whether or not you knew him or he knew you. Remember, remember this, heaven is God's home. And the only people going into God's home are people that know him. Many people act like heaven is like a state park and they feel like, well, I'm just entitled to go there. So some people treat going to heaven kind of like planning their retirement. They think, you know, when I retire, I'm gonna move to Florida. And then after some years, I'm gonna move to heaven. That like, just, it's just my plan. This is how I'm going to handle this. But no, heaven is God's home. So, so two questions. Do you know Jesus? And is he expecting you in heaven? Imagine if somebody showed up at your house like that. Hey, we're going to stay here. What if there were some family, some random family out in California and, and they went online and found your address and looked at your house, maybe on realtor.com. They just saw your house, thought, you know, uh, we're going to go there. Your house isn't for sale. You're not on Airbnb. They just picked out your house that we're going to vacation their family. And so imagine they made the trip across the country and there came that day when they arrived in your driveway with all their luggage, they come up and ring your doorbell and they say, we're here. You'd respond, who's here? Who are you? We chose your place for vacation. And you say, no, no, you didn't. You might even use Jesus' words here. You need to depart from me. I've never known you. Maybe you'd add this, there's an Econo Lodge somewhere, but I don't know you. you. You can't come here. It'd be very different if your brother came from out of town to stay with you, but not somebody that you don't know. So Jesus makes it clear, heaven is only for those who know Jesus. And so let me ask you, do you know Jesus? You might ask the question, well, how can I know Jesus? How can I know him personally like this? Well, first of all, you need to know who he is and what he did for you. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He's God. 
who became flesh, and he came on a rescue mission to this earth. He lived an absolutely perfect life. He loved, he taught, he healed, but ultimately coming to give his body and blood on a cross to pay for your sins and the sins of the world for all who would believe in him. This is Jesus, God in the flesh, who came to save you. Do you know that? And he was raised up from the dead on the third day, proving that his sacrifice for sins was accepted and that he has power over death. He is the one who can give eternal life. So first of all, understand who he is and what he did. And then in one motion, repent and believe in him. We're just asking, how can I know him, know who he is, know what he did, and now repent and believe in him? You're acknowledging in this moment that you need a savior that you've sinned against God and you need forgiveness. Understand this, you've not just sinned in active ways, things that you did that you should not have done, and we've all done plenty of those. But just as many times, and maybe even more, there are times that we should have done things God said to do, but we refuse to do those. That's also great sin. And then the Lord calls out, even in the Sermon on the Mount, we can have bad motives that God calls sin. So it could be, it could be pride, it could be greed, it could be lust going on in our hearts that we haven't even acted on yet that anybody could see and there's sin there. So we're acknowledging and turning from that when we come to Jesus. I'm a sinner. I need forgiveness from all this and I'm coming to Jesus. And then you're asking him to save you. You're putting your faith in him. You're believing in him. Here's how the scripture describes it. Remember Jesus's words in John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, here it is, believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Or Romans 10, 13, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Or Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And then Romans six twenty three. I love this. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so ask the question, do I know Jesus? Have I put my full faith in Jesus alone to make me right with God? And so do you know Jesus? And here's the second question. You just want to, should I have assurance that I know Jesus? Have you trusted Jesus? Secondly, has Jesus changed your life? Can you see evidence in your life that Jesus is in your life? Notice Jesus's words very carefully here. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Catch this. But he who does the will of my father who is in heaven will enter. So doing God's will is not what saves you, but it is evidence that you have been saved. There is a visible change in a person's life when they come to know Jesus in a saving way. We know that because the scripture is so clear. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. So what are those new things that I should find in my life if I came to know Jesus as my savior? What, what are the new things? Well, one of the new things is this, an ongoing faith. So the moment you believed, you entered through the narrow gate. You say, Jesus, I'm trusting you and you only as my savior. And I want to walk after you. You came to him with childlike, simple faith. And here's the question. Do you still have that childlike, simple faith? So a saving faith that's real is a faith that lasts. 
There's no such thing as a person, yeah, I used to believe in him, but I don't anymore, but I still think I'm saved. No, a saving faith is a faith that lasts. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 24, 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So do you have ongoing faith in Jesus, not just something you point back to? Secondly, do you have an ongoing love for Jesus? Listen, to know Jesus is to trust him, but to know Jesus is to love him. Even through the years to find that, you know, I love him more. As I walk with him, as I ponder his goodness, as I see his faithfulness, I love him more. So an ongoing faith should be in your life if you know Jesus. An ongoing love for Jesus should be in your life if you truly know Jesus. And how about this one? An ongoing desire to walk faithfully with Jesus. Are you able to say with credibility, Jesus is my Lord? Does that, does that ring true in your life? Listen, before Christ, you were delighted to disobey him. Didn't bother you at all. But now that you're in Christ, you are grieved when you disobey him. It's, it's, a, it's a mark of a person who's come to know Jesus. The way you relate to sin is now very different. You're still tempted. You still can falter into sin. But, but your response to when you sin, very different now that you're in Christ. You are miserable now when you sin. And you find that you must repent now that you're in Christ. So here's, here's the mark of a genuine Christian. You have peace in your soul when you're walking in obedience. And you have misery in your soul when you're walking in known disobedience and something has to give if you're a genuine believer. So see it again here. It's not the person who merely uses the words, Lord, Lord, that are going to heaven. It's those who are following him as Lord. Who Jesus said, the one who does the will of my father is in heaven. Again, the evidence that it's real. Notice what he said in here. He describes those who had not believed, they've not known him. He's, he points to their life. He says, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That grammar there is a present participle. It means it's their ongoing lifestyle. They have a lifestyle of ongoing lawlessness. That's not a person who's known Jesus, no matter what religious things they have done. Again, the doing doesn't save you. It just reveals if you have come to know him. Someone who practices lawlessness has not met Jesus. So we're not talking about perfection here, but we are talking about the direction of your life. The Bible is explicitly clear on this. Let me give you these examples. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? This is key. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. Ephesians 5, verses 5 and 6. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Jesus spoke similarly in John 8, 31, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Or how about James's words in James chapter two? What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? He went on to write this, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. 
And so please take these moments and examine your faith. Test your salvation. 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says this, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? So you need to have assurance of salvation. How do you have it? Two words. First of all, look back. Look back. Has there been a time in your life when you recognize your sinfulness and it undid you? Like, oh, I see it. And you're distressed by your sin. Every, every time in your life when you were distressed by your sin and then you move to Jesus with it, Jesus, only you can forgive me of this. I need you to cleanse me, save me, take over my life. Can you look back at your life and say, yeah, I, I came to know Jesus sometime in the past. We call that conversion. Did you ever trust Jesus like that? But don't just look back. You should be able to also look in the present. Look at the pattern of your life. Do you have this ongoing faith? Do you have this ongoing love for Jesus? Do you have this ongoing desire, though imperfect, to follow Jesus? How about this analogy? How do I know that I'm married to joy? How do I know? Well, I can look back. I can go back to August 8, 1987, and then I remember the wedding day. I remember on my wedding day, I remember looking at the marriage license. But I'm really, I'm really married. I could, I could do that. I could look back. But if that's all I can do, wouldn't that be alarming? I should be able to look at the present and still know that I'm married because what happened on August 8, 1987 has changed every day since. And far more profoundly, when you meet Jesus, that shapes every day since. And yes, even into eternity. Do you know Jesus? Can you look back and see when you first met, but are you still walking in him? Is there still evidence that he's alive in your life? Now I have good news for you here. Maybe right now you're saying, I'm not sure that I know Jesus. I was sure, but now I'm not sure. Can you go from lack of assurance or even a false assurance to genuine assurance? Can you make that move? Oh, you can make that move. And I know this because the Bible teaches it, but I also know it because I've experienced it. Many of you know my story, but at the age of 13, I heard about hell and I didn't want to go there. I didn't understand how salvation worked. And so here's how my 13-year-old brain processed it. My parents were divorced. So I had a Presbyterian weekend and a Baptist weekend. Presbyterian weekend, Baptist weekend as we went to church. Again, in those days, church didn't mean much to us. Certainly no relationship with God in our family. We weren't living it out. It was just kind of cultural Christianity. So in my brain, I thought the way to go to heaven, the Presbyterian way, is you take a class. And I totally misunderstood it. I know you're sprinkled as a Presbyterian baby, as I was. And then I thought at around the age of 12, you take a class and you get to go to heaven. Unfortunately, I was 13. And I thought, I don't want to take a class with 12-year-olds. That's embarrassing. And so I thought, I, don't, I won't go to heaven that way. So I kind of watched what the Baptists did on my Baptist weekends. And the, the Baptists had a way that was a lot faster. It was humiliating because you had to come in front of people and then get baptized underwater. But I thought, if that'll keep me out of hell, I'll do that way. And so a shy kid that I was, I went the Baptist way and, and I went through the motions. People were so happy for me. I got dunked underwater and I got to tell you, I had assurance of salvation. I, I knew I was going to heaven. The problem was I would not have gone to heaven. I didn't get Jesus in any of that. It's not the church's fault. I'm sure they told me straight. I just didn't get it. I just wanted to have some spiritual insurance that I could just tuck away for the one day when I die, I'll get to go to heaven because I went through the motions in this in this church. I looked at it like it was a ticket to heaven. I could just stick in a drawer somewhere and maybe when I need it, it'll be there. But there was no Jesus in it. I didn't come to know Jesus. Had I died there at 13, 14, 15, I'm sure I would have heard 
Depart from me, I never knew you. By the grace of God, three years later, around the age of 16, almost 17, then through my brother's example, but getting into the Bible, God then made me aware of my sinfulness. And where I understood, oh, it's Jesus. It's not going through these motions. I need Jesus himself to rescue me. He died for me on the cross. He was raised from the dead. I see now my faith needs to be 100% in Jesus alone, what he did for me. Oh, and now there was a change. Now assurance of salvation based on Jesus, not some religious things that I thought I had done. Listen, I want you to have that assurance today that you know Jesus. You can go from a false assurance to what we call a blessed assurance. And today I want you to have that by, by asking Jesus to save you. Maybe your decision for Christ was when you were little and you think, I don't even know what I was thinking then. And you might genuinely have been saved then, but there's no harm in saying to him now, Lord, I just want to affirm I'm trusting you now. I do believe Jesus, you're the only way I could go to heaven. All of my faith is in you. Just affirm that I, I'm trusting you, Jesus. I, I want to walk with you, follow you, but I know all my faith is resting in you. Well, I want to give you a moment now to transfer all your trust in Jesus. Let's pray together. God, we want to thank you that you're a God who delights to save, that this was your idea to come after, to redeem sinful humanity, people like us who had rebelled against you. Thank you, God, for your patience. God, we're amazed by your persistence, how you pursued us to where we would awaken to our sinfulness and awaken to our need for you. God, I pray that you'll do that act of grace in heart after heart who are watching this service. Lord, cause people to see their sin, but not stay there, but to run to you for the righteousness and cleansing you can give. Lord, I pray that you'll do that. God, those who need assurance and not to be tormented, I pray you'd comfort those who truly know you. And Lord, but those who need to be stirred and, and Lord need to be alarmed, I pray that that sense of alarm would be in those. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. And then a final word, let me encourage you to reach out to us. Don't, don't struggle with this alone. If you need assurance, you want to walk this through with somebody, why not reach out to us? And you can do that through email. You can email us at this address, email at smrbc.org and say, I just want to talk about my salvation. We'd love to do that for you. Or you can even go to our website, smrbc.org forward slash connect. And just in that form, just tell us, I want to talk to somebody this week about assurance of salvation. Would somebody contact me? Oh, we'd be glad to do it. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us today.